Well, we learn a lot about leaders in crisis moments, don't we? We have everybody from Benedict Arnold, right, who was a, a, a colonist officer for a while and all of a sudden saw that he didn't think things were going the way of the colonists and saw an opportunity for upward mobility with the, the, the English and so he turned coat, right? He became a traitor and he left the colonists and he went over to the side of England to fight from them and, and made a huge mistake in the process. And so we saw the, the character and the quality of Benedict Arnold's leadership during those crisis moments. But then we also saw the, the character and the quality of a man named Sergeant Henry Johnson. Anybody heard of Sergeant Henry Johnson before? He was a, an officer during World War I and he was known as the Harlem Hellfighter. Here's what happened with Sergeant Henry Johnson when he was presented with a crisis moment. While on sentry duty on May 15th in 1918, Johnson and a fellow soldier, Private Needham Roberts, received a surprise attack from a, a German force of about 12 soldiers. And while under intense enemy fire, despite receiving significant wounds himself, Johnson mounted a brave retaliation, resulting in several enemy casualties. When his fellow soldier was badly wounded, Johnson prevented him from being taken prisoner by German forces. He exposed himself to grave danger by advancing from his position to engage an enemy soldier in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Wielding only a knife and being seriously wounded, Johnson continued fighting. Displaying great courage, Johnson held back the enemy force until they retreated. The enemy's raid, enemy raid's failure to secure prisoners was due to the bravery and resistance of Johnson and his fellow soldier. The effect of their fierce fighting resulted in the increased vigilance and confidence of the 369th Infantry Regiment. So there's a man that we don't know, and yet we hear that story, and we can tell what kind of a leader Sergeant Henry Johnson was. On our passage this morning, we're not going to see that David is going to run out of any foxholes and enter into hand-to-hand -hand combat with anybody, but yet at the same time, we're going to very clearly see David's leadership on display and the effects of his leadership on the lives of the men that were following him. We pick up our text in 2 Samuel in a little bit of a, a meanwhile section, and it's been some time since we've gathered together. We've been taking a break over the summer. We looked at the book of Revelation and the, the seven churches, but now we're back in, in 2 Samuel, and so it, it would be, be good for us, right? It would behoove us to, to catch up a little bit with what's been going on. And so if we look back in 1 Samuel chapter 31, we see the, the recording of the death of Saul and Jonathan, and that's something that we'll certainly return to in a few moments here. But right before that, we had 1 Samuel chapter 30. And if you remember what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David and his mighty men, after fleeing from Saul, are hiding behind enemy lines with the Philistines. And in fact, David had been going out on raiding parties for the Philistines, although he was going out and also attacking the enemies of Israel at the time. And yet there was a, a big battle that was forming and drawing up, and, and the, the armies were getting ready to go to war against each other between the Philistines and the Israelites. And see, David had won such favor with the leader of the Philistines that he was ready to send David and his mighty men into battle on behalf of the Philistines against the Israelites. But you'll recall some of the Philistine leaders went up to their king and they said, wait a minute, this doesn't seem like the wisest decision to, to send our, our enemy into battle against his own kinsmen because what's to say he's not going to turn against us? His mighty men aren't going to turn against us in the heat of battle. And so the Philistines saw the, the better part of wisdom there and they looked at David and his mighty men and they said, no, 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 you're not welcome to go into battle with us. We want you to go back, back to your homes in Ziklag. 
And so you remember David and his mighty men went back to Ziklag and they came back to Ziklag and yet they found that there was something that had been going on while they were up at the front lines, that Ziklag had been ransacked by the Amalekites. And there was nothing left there for them and their wives and their children and their families. Everybody that they had had with them were gone. And if you recall, David's men were pretty upset, pretty angry at that point. It was the breaking point. They had been with him, some of them for over a decade and, and running for their lives and hiding in caves and they had opportunities to end everything, not once but twice when David had Saul in his crosshairs and chose instead to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and now it had led them to living in Philistia and their wives were gone, being taken captive by this band of Amalekites. And so they were done. They were ready to kill David. But David, in what was perhaps the greatest halftime speech ever, rallied these men that were ready to kill him and said, no, 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 let's go get the Amalekites. Let's go get our families back. And that's exactly what they did. They went and they found the, the Amalekites with the help of the Egyptian sojourner there. And they, they discovered their camp and they went down and, and they gathered their families and they gathered their wives and they wiped out the Amalekites and they gathered all the spoil and they came back to Ziklag. And we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 26, it says, when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends and the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And it goes on and talks about all the different places that I can't pronounce that I tried to last night and butchered. And he sends all of the, the, the loot there, right? All of the things that they had, had secured from the Amalekites, he sends it out to them. Well, then we have this First Samuel chapter 31, which is back with Saul. And now in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we open back with David. And it says, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Well, you can imagine after everything had been settled, order had been restored after the situation with the Amalekites. They're back in Ziklag. Their families are back together and, and everybody's feeling good because they've, they've not only gotten all of their possessions back, but they took all the spoil that the Amalekites had with them at the time as well. And, and they're sitting down and, and, and everything's kind of returning to status quo for them. As chaotic as even status quo would have been for a group of men on the run for their lives. But at the same time, you, you have to imagine that David was beginning to wonder, Right? what happened between the Philistines and Israel? David and his men knew that they were drawing up for battle. The battle was imminent. They had been on the front lines. They had seen the Philistine forces amass. They knew that Saul and Jonathan were, were gathering Israel and they were going to do battle with one another. And yet they had been distracted for a brief time with the situation with, with the Amalekites. And now that that was taken care of, you can imagine that David was wondering and his mind was racing and thinking, what happened with the battle? And then all of a sudden he sees this man running towards him. And as the man draws closer, David sees that this man has his clothes torn and, and dust and ashes on his head, which were symbolic of mourning and sorrow. If you remember the account of Job, after Job learns that his possessions are gone and his servants are gone and his family is gone, that he tears his clothes and he falls on the ground and then he eventually finds himself sitting in a pile of ashes. This was a, a sign of despair. And so as this man approaches, you can imagine that, that David already knows that the news that is coming to him is not going to be good news. And he says to him in verse 3, where do you come from? And the man said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. 
And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Well, David inquired further of this young man. Having received this news that would have rocked David to his core, he wanted to know more. He wanted to know, okay, is this, is this true? How do you know? And that's exactly what he says in verse 5. He says, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? Verse 6, the young man who told him said, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. By chance, I just happen to find myself in the midst of a raging battle. I don't know what happened. I got up from my morning walk and there I was. By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. So far, this, this man's story lines up, okay? We know that from 1 Samuel chapter 31, that the battle was pressing in, that in fact, the archers had struck Saul and that he was dying, okay? We know that point to, to be true, but then we see a little bit of a, a shift in what we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Verse 7, and when Saul looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. Well, we have a problem. We have a problem because what this Amalekite reports to David is not what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 31. In fact, let's look at that. 1 Samuel chapter 31 verse 3. The narrator says, The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. There's a significant character missing in the account of 1 Samuel 31. Who's that? The Amalekite. He's nowhere mentioned in that passage at all. But yet now he's standing before David saying, hey, David, here's what happened. I was there. And honestly, I think he probably was there. He does have the king's crown. He does have the king's armlet. David, David doesn't protest that, wait a minute, these don't belong to Saul. So clearly this man was nearby, close enough that he was able to go to Saul's dead body, take off the crown, take off the armlet before the Philistines came and, and, and ravaged Saul's body themselves. So I think this man is, is a man of, of incredibly low character, a wretched man who was on a battlefield looking to rob the bodies that had fallen. And he happens to come upon the king of Israel. And never in his wildest dreams did he imagine that such a scenario, such an opportunity for advancement and self-glorification would present itself. And so he grabs the crown and he grabs the armlet and he thinks to himself, you know what, I'll come up with a story that makes me look like a, a merciful instrument of, 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 of grace and, and justice in this. That I didn't let the king of Israel fall into the hands of the Philistines. That I relieved his pain and suffering and, and surely I will be rewarded for that. And so this man grabs the crown and grabs the armlet and he goes back to David with this message that 
he thought was good news, but unfortunately it was going to be the, the worst news that this man could ever deliver in his entire short-lived after this life. It's interesting when David finds this man, when this man comes to him and, and we consider the character of this man in contrast to the character of David, we notice that there's a great difference there in their perspective on climbing the ladder, so to speak. It's point one for us this morning. It's this. As men after God's own heart who are looking to lead well, we need to remain humble and trust in God's timing. We need to remain humble and trust in God's timing. For this man, this was nothing less than a prideful power grab. He didn't have any consideration for David or his men. He simply saw an opportunity for upward mobility. David had a reputation, not just among Israel, but among everybody that he came into contact with. Certainly the Amalekites knew who David was. And so this man knew that now that Saul was dead, David was the next up. David was the next man that was, that was going to ascend to the throne. Maybe he didn't know that he was going to be the next king, but he certainly knew that, that power resided with David. David was a good man to get in good with. And so this man thought, you know what? I can change my outlook on life. I don't have to rob dead bodies on a battlefield anymore. I can go in and get in good with David with this message, with this lie that I've created to, to make me look to, like a, a friend of Israel, like a friend of the king. And you know what? What's more, he might even be pleased with me because I killed Saul, his arch rival. The problem is, we come to a verse like Luke chapter 14, verse 10, when Jesus says this. He says, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. See, David had taken that approach. David had remained humble and patient, trusting in God's timing for God to exalt him when he saw fit. David understood what James came to understand, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But what we find in this young Amalekite is we find a man who is the, the foil of David. This man's wretchedness just sheds more and more light on David's righteousness. This man was willing to stoop to the lowest of lows in order to make a name for himself. Sets aside any consideration of what is right and what is good and what is just to only look out for his own interests. He took the death of these men as an opportunity to promote himself. He was under a delusion that David would consider this as good news. But again, consider the contrast of David. Here you have David who had multiple opportunities to seize power and position and prestige for himself. And yet remained patient and remained humble and trusted God's timing of it all. Think about this. David was the anointed king in waiting. Samuel had anointed him and said, David, you are going to be the next king of Israel. He knew that it was God's plan, God's design for him to take the throne. And yet he remained patient and humble and waited for God's timing. David had justice on his side. How many times had Saul tried to kill David? deceived David, lied to David, pursued David, attacked David. David would have been just in retaliating from a worldly perspective. David even had Jonathan's loyalty with him. 
And so if David had taken things into his own hand, if David had had made a a power grab and and relied on his own timing, his own agenda, nobody from a worldly perspective really would have blamed him or held him accountable at all. But instead, David remained humble and trusted in God's timing. Where do you need to be trusting in God's timing in your life right now? Maybe you have an opportunity for upward mobility in your company or your job, or or maybe you just have an opportunity that's going to be on the surface good for you, but there might be some way in which you would have to to compromise your integrity in the process of seeing that realized. Are you willing to say, you know what, I'm going to let that pass by and trust God and trust his timing. If he wants me to move up in, in work or in my family or, or whatever, he, he will provide that. He will pave the way and he will do so in a way that I don't have to compromise my integrity. Verse 11, David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Not the reaction that this man was thinking. Verse 13, and David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. This man has no clue who he's talking to right now, does he? I mean, on one hand he does, but on the other hand, he, he, he doesn't. Where have David and his men just come from? Destroying the Amalekites. So he says, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm an Amalekite. Okay, there, there's his death warrant right there. Forget what he claimed to have done to Saul. That's his death warrant. And not even because of the raiding party against Ziklag, right? There was an Old Testament command back in the Torah by God to what? Wipe out the Amalekites. And Israel had failed to do so. So David knew, hey, one of the things that I need to do in obedience to God is wipe out the Amalekites. So this guy's in trouble from the word go. David said to him in verse 14, and and hear the incredulity in David's voice here. The horror in his voice. How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. This man was looking for an attaboy and he gets killed. And he gets killed for a lie. See, this man lacked something crucial that David and his men didn't lack. This man lacked an understanding of a fear of God. This man had a meology where David and his men had a theology. He was out for himself and himself only. But what a tragic end for this man. A man so glory hungry, so desperate for prestige and for honor and for recognition that he concocts this grand story, this grand lie in order to win favor with a man who ends up killing him for something that he didn't even do. Let's take care that we don't find ourselves in a similar situation, having gotten out ahead of God in search of our own glory and not his. Let's remain humble and trust in God's timing. Second Samuel chapter four, verse 10, David reflects on this incident and he says, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news. 
I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Verse 14 of chapter 1. David said to him again, How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand out to destroy the Lord's anointed? The Lord's anointed, that's a, a, a concept, a phrase that we've seen already in 1 Samuel a few times, isn't it? All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, when Saul is anointed as king over Israel, he is referred to as the Lord's anointed. You remember that God had been the king of Israel, but Israel said, hey, thanks God, but we actually like somebody that we can see, touch, feel. We want that person to be our king. And God said, are you sure? And they said, yeah, we're sure. And he said, really? Because I don't think that's going to go well. And they said, no, we want to be like the other nations because that's always a good plan. And God said, fine, here's your king. But at the same time, this was the king that God had installed. He was the Lord's anointed. This wasn't a popular election. This wasn't a popular vote. This was God saying, this is my man. And he put him in place. And then there's the account in 1 Samuel chapter 24. When David and his men are on the run from Saul and they find themselves in the cave. And Saul wanders into the cave to relieve himself. And David and his men are going, hey, I, you're not going to find him more vulnerable than he is right now. This is the day. David, this is the day that God has given you to, to, to put an end to this. David, this is your day. This is about exalting you. It's time for you to ascend to the throne, David. Take things into your own hand. And what did David say? David said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust God's plan. I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And then you had 1 Samuel 25, David and Abigail, and then you come to 1 Samuel 26, and it's another situation where David has this opportunity to seize things and, and take things into his own hand. David and Abishai are in the camp of, of Israel, and Saul is laying at their feet asleep. And Abishai is, is holding the spear, and he's like, he looks at David, and he says, David, let me end this now. This is the day that God has given you to exalt yourself, to take the throne. Now's our opportunity, David. And David says, no, it's not this time. Because I'm not going to raise my hand against what? The Lord's anointed. This is what drove David's respect for Saul. And now drove his reaction to the news of the death of Saul. It wasn't so much an affection for Saul as it was an awesome love and fear of God. And this is an unmistakable mark of a man after God's own heart. Look again at verse 11 and 12. Notice that David wasn't alone in his reaction. Verse 11, David took hold of his clothes and tore them and so did, what's that say? All the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord in the house of David, because they had fallen by the sword. David's men are right there with him in the anguish and the sorrow, right there with him, mourning and weeping and fasting all day long. These are the same men that in the cave when Saul was relieving himself said, David, end it now. And when David just cut off a tiny corner of Saul's robe and then felt immense guilt, these were the men that, that were looking at him going, what, what is your problem? Kill him. These were the men in, in, in 1 Samuel 26 who when Abishai and David came back to the camp and David went off for some quiet time and Abishai is going, guys, I don't know what's going on. I had the opportunity. He was right there. I had the spear. That Again, we're probably incredulous that David didn't end it. 
These were the men who were bloodthirsty. But a man after God's own heart who leads well is going to have an influence on others around him. See, David's mighty men followed his example and grew in the fear of God to the point that they went from urging him to kill him to now tearing their robes and mourning and fasting and weeping at his death. This is evidence of David's leadership. It should be evident of ours as well. It's point number two this morning. It's this, lead those you influence to fear God. Lead those you influence to fear God. Again, these, these men, the, the, the news of the death of Saul should have been good news for them. It would have meant no more running, hiding in caves, no more sleeping on the ground, no more wondering where their next meal would come from, no more reputation as societal outcasts. Think about that. They came to, to David out in the wilderness because there was no place for them anymore in Israel. But now they would be returning to Israel with the king in waiting, with the ascending king, and they would be his mighty men. They would be untouchable. So anything that was marked against them in the past, now all of a sudden is gone. They have a clean slate. No more separation from the family that wasn't with them. No more fear of losing the family that was with them. No more hiding in enemy territory. No more fighting for the enemy. No more potential of fighting against their countrymen. And yet there's no celebration at the news that this man brings. There's no hoots and hollers, no, no excitement. And instead there's mourning. Why? Because they had a leader after God's own heart who had led them to fear God. I wonder if, if those that you influence, whether it's your family or people at work or whoever it may be, friends, even your neighbors, can they sense a fear of God in your life? How can you do that? How can you lead others to, to fear God? Here's some ways you can do this. Number one, do you lead others in prayer? When there's a trial that you're facing or you just need wisdom or discernment, whatever it may be, are, are you quick to say, you know what, let's go to the Lord in prayer? Do you demonstrate a dependence on him in those things? Second, do you use the word of God to encourage others? This is what our, our men's conference is all about. Do, do you actually put the word of God into practice? Do you believe, do you fear, that, fear God such that he has given us his word and expects us to use it? And so because of your reverence for him, you are going to do just that. You're going to take it and, and apply it in your life, but also in the lives of those that you love and that you serve alongside. Three, do you emphasize the sovereignty of God with others? When something happens in your life, whether it be good or whether it be bad, when you talk about it with others, especially with those that are not believers, do you emphasize that you trust in and believe in a God who is sovereign? When you speak with other believers about these things, do you emphasize his sovereignty even more and say, look, I, I, I fear the Lord, I, I trust him in this. Fourth, do you confess your sin to others? Do you have a fear of God that takes sin seriously in your life and wants to see it eradicated? Connected to that fifth, do you seek accountability from others? Do you seek accountability from other brothers? Do you ask them to come alongside you, to help you, to, to, to fight, to battle, to wage war against the sins that, that 
offend and grieve your God. And sixth, building off of even this past weekend's message from Pastor Mike, do you think often about the sacrifice of Christ for your sins? The concept of of penal substitutionary atonement, right? That, That God punished Christ with the full weight of his wrath. The cup of God's wrath was exhausted on Christ for you and for your sin. That that should lead us to, to a fear of God that transforms the way that we look at sin, the way that we think about sin, the way that we look at a, a world that glorifies sin. These are ways that we can lead others to fear God. A man after God's own heart is an influencer. He's a leader. He's a, a trailblazer who looks at those around him and says, follow me. Be that type of man. This was David. How did David do this? He taught his men to fear God. He was patient with them. We see this by the reaction in verses 11 and 12 when he takes his clothes and and tears them and they do the same thing and they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David moves on from this point to a song of lament. Moved with such grief, with such sorrow that he, he writes down this, he, he pens this song of lament that he ends up teaching to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah. And it says it's written in the book of Jashar, which is a, a song book that we no longer have access to, but that's where this was recorded for the people. Three times in this lament that David writes, he says this, he says, how the mighty have fallen. Remember, David was surrounded by hundreds of who? His mighty men, right? Mighty men, as they're referred to over and over again in, in the pages of First and Second Samuel. And now David says of Saul and Jonathan, the mighty have fallen. I think it's intentional there. I think it's a sign of honor that David is showing these men to, to, to point to Saul and Jonathan and, and put them in the same company with the men that were serving him, that were protecting him that were fighting for him. David's saying, the mighty have fallen. And then he urges the people, he says, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon and Philistine territories, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. He's saying, make sure that we keep a, a tight lid on this. I don't want people celebrating over the death of Saul, over the death of Jonathan. Verse 21, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you. He's cursing the ground where they died. Nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty, there's the word again, was defiled for the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Their military prowess, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Their unity together. I think we miss that because we focus so much in 1 Samuel and rightly so because it's in the text of Jonathan and David's relationship with one another and yet there's a reality there that Jonathan didn't run away with David. He stayed with his father. So there was a, there was a, a kinship, there was a relationship, there was a bond there between father and son and David is, is pointing to that saying, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, you same daughters who used to shout, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. 
Now he says, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. He turns and grieves Jonathan at the very end there. And just to, to put things to rest, this is in no way a homosexual illusion here. David is simply expressing a fierce devotion, a love, a companionship, like a, a brother, like a family member, like flesh and blood to Jonathan. But this is quite a lot, isn't it? I mean, tearing your clothes, mourning all day long for a man who not once, not twice, but so many times over tried to kill you. And especially when we consider the flip side, that this paved the way for David. This meant no more running. This meant the throne was now going to be his. And, and there's so much from a fleshly and worldly point of view that we would say, David, this is good news. Where we would expect him to, to rejoice and to give the, the, the Malachite an attaboy on his back before killing him because of his you know, nationality. But that aside, we, we would expect David to say, yes, finally. And yet he doesn't do that. Why? Doesn't he do that? Well, yes, because his fear of God, but his fear of God led him to a fierce devotion to the reputation of God that we should bear as well. It's point number three for us this morning as leaders, as men after God's own heart. We need to always be concerned for God's reputation. That's what's driving ultimately David's grief and sorrow and despair. His fear of God, which then leads to this zealousness and, and jealousness for God's name and God's reputation. And so he starts out, your glory, O Israel, is slain. And then he says, don't let the Philistines hear of this. I don't want to see them celebrating over this. I don't want the name of my God to be humiliated amongst such a wretched and despicable people is really what David is saying here. Again, anyone else would rejoice that the rival was gone, but a man after God's own heart is always concerned, first and foremost, with the reputation of his God. If you were with us last week on Tuesday night, if not, I, I would urge you to go back and listen to it, watch Pastor Mike's opening message when he gave us 10 leadership traits that we learned from the life of David. And one of those was that we as men, as leaders, need to lead toward God's honor. That's what David is doing here. He's leading toward God's honor, not his own. He's making sure that the men who follow him have a high view of God and that when God's name is attacked, when God's reputation is attacked, that they are sorrowful over that, that they mourn over that, that they grieve over that the way that Phineas did when the, the Israelite brought back the, the, the pagan concubine and went into his tent with her and Phineas grabs the spear and goes in and pins them to the ground. See, when we see the downfall of those who bear the name of Christ. Gentlemen, we need to feel grieved over that. Feel sorrow for the bride of Christ. Our hearts should ache to the blow of the reputation of God. When you see a, a Christian who falls, don't, don't rejoice in that in any sort of cynical way. We should mourn over that. Mourn for him, yes, but even more so for, for what, has been done to the reputation of his God. 
in the eyes of those that he influenced, in the eyes of those that he loved. When you see a, a, an example of Christianity being perverted in the media and by politicians, don't just fall into the trap of cynical anger. Mourn over that. When somebody stands up at an award show and says the only people who pray are crackheads and Republicans. Guys, that's not fodder for the water cooler. That is, that is something that should break our hearts. That our God is being attacked that way. When you see a church of thousands being led astray by a wolf in sheep's clothing, mourn over that. That the reputation of your God is being attacked. Lament for that. What's more, we should constantly be examining our own lives to see whether there are any ways about us that would bring shame on our God. Even the ones that we believe are hidden away from others are not hidden away from him. We need to, to be living lives that are lives, as Jesus said, we need to be willing to come to the light and not to, to hide in the darkness. We need to be able to pray the way David did in Psalm 139 when he said, search me, O God. We need to pray this at the end of every single day. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, David says in Psalm 130, Lord, if, if you kept an account of wrong, who could stand before you? And we read that and we see that and we hear that and we say, praise God that he doesn't keep an account of wrong. But gentlemen, let's you and I keep an account of wrong. And let's keep a short account with God so that we can make sure that there's nothing about our lives that are gonna be bringing shame upon the reputation of God. As men who lead, as men who lead others, as men who influence others, we need to be always concerned for God's reputation. And we've talked about that from the negative side, from the positive side. Make sure you speak well of God. Exalt him, praise him, give him the glory, give him the credit when things go well. Live a life that, that people would look at you and see your good deeds and what do they say? Glorify your father in heaven, right? David's devotion to the Lord made all the difference in how he led his men through this trial. This is a crisis moment for Israel and we see David's medal as a leader emerge through this moment. A man less concerned about God would have rejoiced in the death of a rival. A man less concerned about God would have not cared about his, his fellow Israelites the way that David expresses his, his concern for them. A man less concerned about God would have celebrated this Amalekite and thanked him for giving him this final leg up, but that's not David. David was a man after God's own heart, and so he remained humble and he trusted in God's timing. He led those who he influenced to fear God. And he was always concerned with the reputation of his Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for David. We thank you for his life and his example. God, I thank you that even as you write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Lord, that, that these things have been recorded so that we might learn from the examples of these men. And so I pray that we would learn. I pray that we would learn well from the positive examples, from the negative examples, and that it would make a difference in the way that we live our lives. God, make us this type of leader that we've seen in David together this morning in this text. God, I pray that we would be men who are faithful to, to be men after God's own heart, who lead others well, who influence others that are around us to fear you, who 
who exalt the name and the reputation of God through the way that we live our lives, through the things that we say and how we react to, to different trials and circumstances in our lives. God, may you be pleased and honored and glorified through this all in Christ's name we pray. Amen.